Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Monday, so we must be talking about gerrymandering on This Week in the CLE, <laughs> the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, where it feels like every day we're talking about gerrymandering. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. Hope you all had a great weekend. Laura, you went to a soccer game down in Columbus in that cool new stadium. I did. I went to Lower.com Field to see a soccer match. The crew actually apparently needed to win this game to get into the playoffs, and it was a disappointing 2-1 loss. But I, no, it was cool. It was my first crew game, and uh, there were fireworks afterwards, so no complaints for me. It's a really neat experience. Okay, I hope Layla and Lisa, you had as much fun this rainy weekend as Laura did. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> I, I, my kids got their their Halloween costumes. That is oh, there you go. What are they going yeah. as? You got to give uh, that up. A pirate, a uh, a witch, and a ladybug. Very Aww, cute. The ladybug is the hand me down. Every every baby Aww. in our family has to go as the ladybug. <laughs> yeah, my daughter went as a ladybug. Yeah, it's a cute outfit. Very cool. <laughs> All right, let's get started. Our Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, State Auditor Keith Faber, and Secretary of State Frank LaRose defending themselves for having nothing to do with drawing new legislative districts, even though they were members of the State Redistricting Commission. Laura Johnson, this broke very late Friday. A bunch of documents were dumped in which all three acknowledged, yeah, we had no role in that. Even though voters went to the polls in large numbers and created a seven member redistricting commission that they put them on. It's almost like this is nonfeasance. And I should say there's another big dump of depositions today. I expect we'll learn more about this. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know really what they can say to defend themselves on this, but we will find out in these depositions. But DeWine, Faber, and LaRose are the three statewide Republicans on the commission, and they each acknowledged in very similar sworn statements from Friday that they had, quote, no involvement in drafting or creating these legislative maps. Remember how mad we were at the beginning when DeWine didn't show up at a public meeting for the maps? I mean, so it's not just that meeting. Like, he had nothing to do with it. And DeWine said he was only shown the proposed redistricting plan as a courtesy after it was completed, but never before, you know, but before it was made public, but he had no say on it. I don't, I don't really know what defense you can put up from that. They were less than enthusiastic about the final result. And, you know, they said that publicly, but Ohio Senate President Matt Huffman and Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup, who were pretty much apparently the only ones doing this along with some hired guns, they instead deflected blame onto the two Democrats for failing to reach a compromise, which, I mean, pot, kettle, come on. But, you know, what, I, I don't think you can emphasize enough what has happened here, that voters disgusted with our gerrymandered districts voted for a plan they were told would make a much more balanced system. And the plan called for these seven members to get together and and compromise there were two democrats right. on there that they had a they if to have 10-year maps they would have to approve it but nobody ever intended 
that the two guys that lead the bodies that are covered by the districts would unilaterally go off and do it by themselves. Nobody voted for that. And one of two things happened here. The, the three Republicans allowed that and said, yeah, you guys go do it. We got other things to do, which means they didn't do their duties. Or Cup and Huffman told them, get out of our faces. We'll do it. We'll tell you when we're done. In which case they stood by and let that happen. This is just an abandonment of what the Ohio voters asked for. Again, there's depositions that have been released this morning. It'll be fascinating to see what they said. But when are Ohioans going to get up in arms with this? They're public leaders. They missed their constitutional deadline. They didn't do any work on this. When do people get fed up and say, you're not doing your jobs? We don't want you anymore. Why did they run for office anyway? I mean, I completely agree with you. You said at the top of the podcast, we're talking about redistricting again and gerrymandering. We're always talking about it. But I feel like not enough people are talking about it in, in the regular everyday lives because we are seeing some people fed up enough to you know, have a rally at a state house. I've seen some fair district signs all over the place. But I, no one I'm saying is saying we're going to vote them out of office because of this. And and maybe they know that their whole point is to keep a Republican supermajority. So they're never threatened with being voted out of office. I mean, that's their end goal. Their end goal is not fair maps that represent Ohioans interests. Their job, their goal is to stay in power. And what do you do if you're the Supreme Court now hearing that all these members of the redistrict commission did nothing and two guys went off by themselves and stacked the deck? I, I just, how do you deal with that? It's like, wait, governor, you did nothing. Did you see in the constitution that you're a member of this commission, that, that the voters expected that you would do something? That's why they put you on it. And he, what does he say? Yeah, no. And of course his son is sitting there as a justice ruling on what his father has to say, because he doesn't understand the conflict of interest policies that affect the courts. Amazing stuff. Oh, go ahead. I I was just going to say, I don't know if the Supreme Court talks about the pro the process and how messed up it was, or if they're just looking at the end result and saying, you, you missed these constitutional requirements. I don't know. I would argue a constitutional requirement is if a seven-member commission is created, that the seven members work as a commission. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, it does what? seem like pretty elementary. Like, you learned that in kindergarten. Y'all work together. Well, the one thing is for certain is that we'll be talking about this again tomorrow. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is a desperate need for nurses to deal with COVID-infected patients resulting in some big paydays for Cleveland nurses? Lisa Garvin, this is a story that bubbled up over the weekend. All three hospital systems are doing things to make, make it more lucrative for the nurses to work extra hours. They are desperate for help, so they are offering the moolah to get nurses to come in and, and work. Uh, at Cleveland Clinic, it's called the RN Shift Incentive Program. They're offering $400 a day to RNs, and so if you're a nurse making about 35 bucks an hour, that's about $1,400 a day. But this is only for certain 12-hour shifts. So these are 12-hour shifts. They're going to have to work hard for this money. And uh, I guess this is going to go through November 6th. I don't know what happens after that. And this includes most Cleveland Clinic campuses, the main, Euclid, Hillcrest, Marymount, and others. Metro Health says that their scale, their incentive program started late last week, and it's going to go through early January. Theirs is like a sliding pay scale based on the base salary plus the hours worked. So nurses that do take on these extra hours at Metro Health can earn from one and a half to five times their base pay rate per shift. Um, UH, they didn't really say anything about 
money incentives. They have a helping hands program that they started during the pandemic. And this is where you get nurses to volunteer to cover shifts where they're needed, both clinical and non-clinical nurses. Um, And they're now in phase three, which means that they are getting nurses from other areas to work at the bedside. So yeah, you're going to work hard for that money, but $1,400 a day would be quite a temptation. And I think since that story published, we've learned that UH is paying nurses $100 an hour or something like that for oh, mm-hmm. the extra work. So they're, they're, they're all putting up the money because they've got to deal with all of these patients. It's an interesting case. The, the downside, though, is if they work all of those long hours, they're going to burn out. I mean, if you do five 12-hour shifts in a row, you're going to be not in the mood to be working. And, and I think some people have to make some hard calculations here, you know, because $1,400 a day is really good money. I mean, so, yeah, it's kind of like, do I want to work hard and build up my savings or do I just want to keep myself from burning out and just work a regular shift? So I guess it's up to the nurses and their, their you know, their need for more revenue. Can I add something in here? This is Laura Johnston. I, I think when I talk to to friends who are nurses and I ask, how did we get to this point? They just said, you know, the nurses have been so fed up for so long dealing with COVID and they didn't, you know, need them necessarily at the beginning. And so they were furloughed and, and they got different jobs. You look at the help wanted everywhere. Some are working for insurance companies. Some went to travel nursing where they get paid that much anyway. And so the healthcare systems are going to have to figure out a new, a new way to, this is not sustainable. Like we're going to have to get more people in nursing school. We're going to have to treat them better to begin with. I don't know. And we have a story coming. It might even be this week that originated with a question I asked on sub my subtext account where I send messages out about stories we're working on and people offered, offered some leads where we're talking to people in the healthcare industry about the range of emotions they feel when people come in dying of COVID who are, anti-vaccination, still believing this whole thing is a hoax or wanting to take warm medicine uh, instead of get real medical care. Uh, This is very different than the beginning of the pandemic where they were heroically trying Mm -hmm. to save people when no Mm -hmm. vaccines were available. Now, everybody they see who's coming in and is dying, for the most part, could have avoided it if they had gotten the shot, but they're militantly against that. So Hannah Drown's been working on that story. It should come this week or next. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How rare is it for so many women to be running for Cleveland City Council seats? Leila Tassi, we've been talking a lot in recent months about the big turnover in Cleveland leadership. But one of the things that stands out there is how few of the new leaders are women. You know, the head of Progressive is a woman. But, you know, we had a time where Beth Mooney was the leader at Key Bank and Barbara Snyder was the leader at Case Western Reserve University. They've both been replaced by men. So it's fascinating to see we may have a new leadership class of women coming from city government. I agree. It, it really seems we're, we're at a moment when the proportion of women on council could be stronger than ever after this election. There are currently only four of the 17 members of council who are women, despite the fact that women make up you know more than half of the population. But among the 13 competitive races this election season, 12 women candidates will be on the November 2nd ballot. Courtney Astolfi found that's a higher share of women candidates on the ballot than at any time in at least the past two decades. Before this, only once since 2000 have there been 12 women on the ballot. 
But that was in 2005 when there were 21 seats up for grabs. So women that year were running in in about 57% of contests. This is a much bigger proportion of the races that where women are represented. Some some of the some of the newcomers are are long shots. I mean, let's be honest about that based on based on how few votes they earned in the primary. But other candidates are really strong contenders. You know, for example, there's Rebecca Moore, who's who's facing incumbent Anthony Brancatelli by about he she lost by about, um, you know, 80 votes during the primary, such a slim margin. Stephanie House, a state representative who came in first in the primary over T.J. Dow and Dolores Gray, who beat Richard Starr by 30 votes in the primary. These are, are uh, you know, we might see these faces on city council. And, you know, I have long felt that there just were not enough women on council. And this this is just, I, to me, this is super exciting. I, I'm so glad that, that Cordy did this story. Yeah, the Rebecca Mara race is interesting. Uh, she has a real shot. Uh, we, we Our editorial board didn't endorse her, although it was a very close vote. Uh, and some of the members liked her a good bit. Uh, if if she wins, I think she would do a very good job. Richard Starr, we thought, would have the um, the edge in that race. We had worked with him closely in the Greater Cleveland Project, but he didn't win the primary. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if uh, he overcomes overcomes that. But you're you're right. That body has been so dominated by men for the pretty much the entire time we've been looking at it, that it would be interesting to have that perspective and see how things might work differently. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the factors that are making the 2022 Senate race in Ohio one of the most expensive in the nation? Laura Johnston, Andrew Tobias did a pretty exhaustive breakdown of the huge amounts of money that are flying around in this race eight months before primary day. Why is it that there's so much money in this thing? Yeah, well, I mean, he looked at very deeply at each candidate, but the basis is there's an open seat. Rob Portman is not running again. There's several independently wealthy candidates funding their own campaign, and there's one billionaire super donor. And obviously, people care about this race. It's the third most uh, spending in the nation after two both Democratic and Republican Senate races in Georgia for the 2022 election cycle. And obviously, Georgia's a big deal. But we're looking at $9.5 million so far to replace Portman that they've spent. They've raised $22.5 million. That's the third most of any primary nationally after Georgia and New York. And that doesn't even include $10 million um, that a super PAC backing J.D. Vance got. And that was from Peter Thiel a Silicon Valley billionaire. So this is this is huge amounts of money and we are still a long way out. So we are going to hear a lot about this race. What what's interesting is they're spending all this money, but I still get the feeling that voters can't differentiate between them. There was another debate last night that Andrew covered where they all take pretty much the same positions except for Matt Dolan who stands apart. This was an audience very much favoring the the non-Matt Dolans. Uh, it was evangelical Christians that, that wanted to hear what Josh Mandel and company had to say. But, but still, how do you stand out when everybody is running on a platform that is as right as right gets? I mean, they're, Right. They, and they're you, telling you what they think you want to hear. I mean, Mandel last night told folks, if he went to Washington, he'd have like the Constitution in one hand and the Bible in the other. Oh, and he's Jewish. 
<laughs> like, like, so I just feel like they're, they're trying to play to this base and we're going to be seeing a lot of this stuff. The campaign commercials are going to be starting. Mandel oh, reserved $825,000 in commercials just between now and November 19th airing in Cincinnati, not in Cleveland. And Timken launched her first commercial since April. She's got $564,000 in ads on Fox News running through December 16th. So maybe we'll figure it out in their messaging, but I, I have a feeling that's not going to be real, you know, necessarily truthful or or deep. I wonder it's if a- their only path is attack ads on each other, that, that, they, that they can't beat each other at saying outrageous things because they've reached the limits of outrageousness. So is the best way to do, and Bernie Moreno took a shot at Josh Mandel last night saying, you know, you talk about the steel in your spine as a Marine. Where were you when Mike DeWine was shutting down the state? You only say stuff when you're running for office. And I was out there by myself challenging what DeWine did. It was an attack. And I just, I wondered, is that what we're going to see? Lisa Garvin. No, I was just going to say, I think these, uh, these, it's going to be a race to the bottom. I mean, like you said, they've kind of run out of things to say, but where do you go from there? I don't think they're going to go up. I think they're just going to keep going to the bottom. It's going to be ugly. And, then it... Matt, and Matt Dolan's out there trying to stand apart from all them saying, I'm not the Donald Trump accolade. I'm my own person. And he, and he brought up some things that he stood for that didn't play well with this group, but it's still, is, is there enough of a lane for the anti-Trumper Republicans to get behind him where he can emerge. Laura Johnson. I was going to ask if, if it comes down to who's got the most money to spend and who's got the deepest pockets themselves. Cause these group, these candidates are lending themselves a whole lot of money. And then don't forget Mandel started with $4.3 million mm-hmm. from his aborted Senate campaign back in 2018. So he had like, you know, a little bit to start with, but I don't think he has as deep of pockets as Tim Ken and Moreno. We'll see. And then whoever prevails has to run against Tim Ryan, who who might be a little more moderate and appeal to more people in the middle than the people that are running and, in the Republican. And he side. raised five point six million dollars. So, I mean, that's not nothing. OK, you're listening to this week in the CLE. How is Matt Borges, one of the men charged in Ohio's scandalous HB6 bribery case, aggressively fighting back against the prosecution? Lisa Garvin. I always marvel when somebody charged in federal court goes to war to to defend themselves. And when we talked about this previously, when Matt Borges did this, it was like, man, you are just inviting 16 tons to land on your head. But he might have an opening here. For some reason, the prosecution will not share with him certain documents that discovery rules pretty much say they have to share. What are they trying to hide? It's a good question. Uh, Attorneys for Matt Borges are wanting to get an answer to that question. Last week, they asked the federal judge on the case, uh, Judge Timothy Black, for documents from co-conspirators or co-indictees that they say will clear Matt Borges. Um, So uh, apparently there were some statements from the other two guys who pled guilty, by the way, Jeffrey Longstreth and Juan Cespedes. Apparently there were some documents that uh, show that... uh, Borges didn't really have anything to do with it. It really hinges on the question of whether Borges knowingly and willingly joined the alleged unlawful plan, which is what they're calling it. I love that. And did he know about what they're also calling the big bribe? You know, his attorneys say those answers are in these documents. But apparently um, 
prosecutors are saying that they, there's a federal law that says that they can withhold these documents until the men testify in court. I don't know. That's what they're saying. I don't know if it's true or not. So we'll see. Yeah, although it, it does seem like if you're hiding it from him, that he may have a point. I mean, I look, I, right. I've always thought if the feds come after you, they usually have you, they wear you down, they cost you all your money, you age 10 years into, and ultimately you either get convicted or go or plead guilty. I mean, just look at Jimmy DeMora and that whole case here. But but Borges from day one has been thrown down saying, nope, nope, nope. I didn't do anything wrong. I, I'm not a criminal and I'm going to fight this to the bitter end. And all of a sudden he's got something that makes you go, huh, why would they not share what these statements are? Is there something yeah. in these statements that feed his claim that I didn't know about the bribes? He's, he acknowledges working for these campaigns, but his whole thing is didn't know anybody got bribed. So I'm not guilty of a crime. I, I can't wait to see how, the ruling comes out. I would think the judge will tell the feds, give it up. He, he's got to build his defense. You've got to tell him what you've got. Um, and man, we'll want to see those documents too, right? Right. It's going to be very interesting. And of course, prosecutors, they're focusing in on a few things, but they're saying that he was a key player in that campaign to quash the referendum again to repeal HB6 and that he paid $15,000 to a staffer at the campaign repeal camp for inside dirt on that. And, you know, the guy, Tyler Furman wore a wire, but so, you know, I, I don't know if those documents will, you know, I'm, I can't think of the word will, you know, exonerate, exonerate. him. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I'd love to see he, Go ahead. And remember, he also has come out swinging earlier when he accused the prosecutors of lying to him and right. trying to get him to plead guilty, that they claimed to have evidence that they didn't have. And so this is not his first assault on the prosecution. And they had some explaining to do. It'll be fun to see what comes out of that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are voters to know whether the school board candidates they are voting for are involved in the movement to oppose critical race theory. Leila Tassi, I'm getting lots of notes in response to a story we published over the weekend for people in districts we didn't cover saying, hey, can you do this here? We don't want to elect critical race theory people, but we don't know who they are. So this is, a, this is an interesting one. What is the story we did and what are the limitations on expanding it? Well, so th this is such a high stakes election season for school board races and the, the campaign literature that candidates have been putting out are so confusing and disingenuous. And so we asked Hannah, uh, we asked reporter Hannah Drown to, to go out and create the comprehensive list of Cuyahoga County school board candidates who are running on an anti-critical race theory anti-masking, anti-comprehensive sex education agenda. And she discovered that there are two opposing groups out there that have issued lists of candidates that align with their political views on these specific, very contentious issues. First, there's Protect Ohio's Future. This is the group that supports diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice programs, comprehensive sex education, social and emotional learning, and in-school masking and vaccines. 
Then there's Ohio Value Voters, which says on its website that it's dedicated to protecting faith, family, freedom, and the sanctity of life. And they favor candidates who are opposed to critical race theory, opposed to comprehensive sex education, and opposed to social and emotional learning. So Hannah wrote a story that basically listed the candidates that each of these groups stand behind. And I've got to believe that this was such a useful resource for voters who understand how high the stakes are in this school in this year's school board elections. I recently got a mailer from one of our anti-critical race theory candidates here in Bay. And just reading it, you wouldn't know at all where this person stands on these issues. They talk about common sense policies and doing what's right for kids and uses all these generic, you know, talking points that could be claimed by either side of the divide. So if you feel caught up in the quagmire of campaign rhetoric, check out Hannah's story. <laughs> the, but the problem is that if you don't live in one of the cities where the slates have been identified, you have a harder time. And I live in Cleveland Heights and the Democratic Club here is working very hard to make sure residents know which of the candidates for school board are not the CRT types, that they're the people that are just focused on on improving the education because they're worried that people are going to go in, they won't know the names and they'll, and they'll click boxes. So they're putting out very specific information about who are the candidates that they believe were, will be good for education. I, but if you don't have an organization like that in your town, what are you supposed to do? I mean, are there, are there key words that you could suggest people look for in the literature to identify the people that are that are doing this critical race theory nonsense? Well, luckily, the, the League of Women Voters has been sponsoring candidate forums in I, most of most of the communities. So if you find those, I, I assume that most of them have been, uh, you know, loaded up online and, and are you know easy to access and find. If you have time to watch that, I'm sure that you will get all the clues you need about what these candidates stand for. I had to do that okay, for my school out. district. Oh. Mm -hmm. No, I at Southeast. Did it, what did, did you, it answer what did your you questions, do? Lisa? How did you do I, it, Lisa? I, I actually, I, I am in the South Euclid Lyndhurst School District. I on on the neighborhood Facebook page, somebody posted a link to the YouTube League of Women Voters forum. So I went to that. It was an hour long, and I, I looked at the four candidates, and I was pretty comfortable that none of the four of them, all women, two of them black, were not, you know against CRT or anti-masking or anti-vax. So, but, you know, I had to go through an hour and then find it on YouTube to do it. So, yeah. But th this is Laura Johnston. You mentioned you found it on the Facebook page. That's where a lot of our infighting in Rocky River you see on Facebook, um, the back and forth there. So I, I think... <laughs> I think you could read through some of some of those threads and figure out where people stand too. But mm -hmm. I mean, this is a huge issue and everybody's talking about it and everybody's well, got an opinion on it. Well, people don't want to accidentally vote for critical race theory opponents because critical race theory is not taught in any of the schools. It's a, it's a red right. herring, but they don't want to accidentally vote for somebody like that. Who's really coming in to impose their personal values on the district instead of talking about education. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It's not about First Energy and HB6, but what is the story with the State Public Utilities Commission watering down an audit that criticized the same kind of ratepayer subsidies First Energy is getting for coal plants because of HB6? Laura Johnston, it's amazing 
what an ineffective bunch of people are on the Ohio Public Utilities Commission. It's like they're all in the bag for the utilities. They don't represent the people at all. Yeah, exactly. This is the PUCO, the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. You would think these are the people standing up for us consumers. But the a staffer, Mahila Christopher, directed the, an audit firm to use a, quote, milder tone and intensity in this report about subsidies to subsidies to American electric power. And critics say that's evidence that they're overly friendly together. And the only reason we know this is because of the Ohio Consumers Council, which is like my new favorite statewide group, that's just asking for all of these documents to be subpoenaed and to look into this stuff. So they looked at a September 8th, 2020 email in which, I mean, obviously that's not even very long ago, but the staffer told the chief economist at London Economics International to remove a sentence from a draft audit saying that keeping the plants running does not seem to be in the best interest of the ratepayers. So this audit says, this is not good for Ohioans. And they basically had it taken out. And this happened more than one time. And it, it does. It looks very cozy. Yeah, it. I, I just it's one of those two where where you had a staffer saying these coal subsidies are not good for the the consumer. And I keep going back to Bill Seitz, the legislator who keeps telling me they are. So so which is it? You know, I mean, you got a staffer on the P or, or you have the auditor looking at this saying this is not good for the ratepayer. This is a waste of the money. Uh, and the Public Utilities Commission blanking that out. And then people like Bill Seitz saying, give the money to the utilities, give the money to the utilities. Somebody has got to represent us at some point in this. I mean, DeWine's not doing it. The Utilities Commission's not doing it. The legislature's not doing it. Who ultimately stands for the people of Ohio who are paying all these politicians to represent us while they don't do it? Exactly. And the end up of this final version just says that the OVEC plants, the Ohio Valley energy plants cost customers more than the cost of energy and capacity. But that's like a really indirect way of saying, hey, these are bad. And their argument was like, well, we're not we're not the judge on those. So, you know, and we've talked over and over about the PUCO and how it's not standing up for the interests of Ohioans um, and all of the appointees. I mean, it's. It's a sad state of affairs. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE, and that will do it for a Monday. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>